Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. glory and honor belongs to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And we come this morning to lift up your name and declare your glory. The psalmist gives us hope when he writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, you write, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. For you forgive all of our iniquities, and you heal all our diseases. And you redeem our life from the pit and crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And this morning we come with our hearts joined in pleading for healing mercies and for strength to combat the various illnesses that we suffer. We think of Scott who at one time was serving through here. Father, he's near death. He's fought his fight and he's ready to meet you. And I pray that you'd be with his family that he may finish well. And Lord, that you may give them comfort at the death of a loved one. Father, we continue to pray for Mary. We desire for her to be here, but knowing, Lord, that her body now comes to the point where it begins to fail. And let our hearts go to her. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen and comfort her. Let us, as a church, not forget her, but bind together in writing cards and and, uh, phone calls and visits in the same way to encourage Rod that he may bring the good news that we love her and we care for her. We ask for Emily, Avina, for her eyes. Father, I pray that it would just respond to the medicine that they've been giving to her. And Lord, that she may just heal it and that it may begin to function properly, Lord. And then we pray for Rick. Father, he's a faithful minister for you. He has served this church faithfully. Father, I pray that you would just strengthen his body. I pray that you would just give him healing. I pray that you'd relieve the pain that he struggles with each and every day, as many do. Father, we think of Sarah's mom. Continue to strengthen her for your glory. We pray for Renee, who's lost family member, a friend of Cindy. And Father, that Cindy may be able to be a source of comfort and directing her thoughts to the Savior. And then, Father, we come with Becky. Obviously, we see the emotion, Lord, and hear it in her voice. As a friend, Jill, it begins to struggle with her gender identity. This is something that we're going to see more and more common. And Father, We're in a place as a church that it's very difficult to know how to cope. So I pray that you would just give that family strength to trust in you. Let them give strength of their biblical convictions. And Father, just give them, though, the love and the words to be able to share to a family who may be struggling with this. And the young lady, Lord, who's struggling even with that identity. And Father, I pray as a church that we not forget those that are sick. Lord, those that are ill, those that struggle. Father, we just pray that your healing would be done. And we look forward to the hope of our salvation when we will be delivered from this presence of sin. As John tells us that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Until that hope is realized, strengthen us to combat the battle that is today. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our righteousness. And all of God's people said... Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. What a wonderful, wonderful truth 
This morning we continue in our study with the Gospel of Mark, Jesus the Son of Man. We're moving now to the later Galilean ministry as we look at the impact of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 3, 7 through 12. Last week we had finished the last of the four early conflicts that Mark records between the religious leaders and Jesus. The first, obviously, was Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralytic. Remember the story where they lowered the young man on a mat through the roof. And Jesus, before he even healed him, said, your sins are forgiven. They took umbrage on that. The second was Jesus eating with sinners at Matthew's house. How in the world can Jesus eat with sinners? Praise God, he does. The third conflict was about showing religious piety in our fasting and should our fasting be when the Jesus is here, when the bridegroom, and we saw that no, there's a different thing coming. The kingdom requires a different type of worship. And then the fourth was the two incidents regarding of keeping of the Sabbath and whether you could eat or heal on the Sabbath. In each of these conflicts, Jesus has been asserting his authority as Messiah, the anointed one the Lord of the Sabbath, the Creator, the great lawgiver. He's identifying himself through these conflicts. It's showing people just as fire would show really the purity of the gold, the silver, showing who Jesus is. Today's passage, Mark is going to give us a summary of the impact that the early ministry had in the region of Galilee. Let's read that together. Mark chapter 3, 7 through 12, where Mark writes, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Udumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowds heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Father, thank you for the words of Mark that's recorded here. Probably vestiges of Peter's preaching and his recollection and and testimony to who and what you did during your time here on earth. And so, Father, as we come 2,000 years ago, let us hold this dear as we look at what you have accomplished, the impact your ministry had. And let us be willing to give testimony ourselves to the impact you've had in our lives. So, Father, be with us as we read this. Let your Holy Spirit have free reign. Let it not be quenched. Father, just limit the distractions, the moving about. And, Father, that you may be glorified as we listen with open, attentive ears. Be ready to respond to what you say. And Lord, I pray that you would just bless the speaking of it. In your name we pray. Amen. Before Mark begins narrating the latter part of Jesus' Galilean ministry, and again, as we look through Mark, we'll see that there's the early part of Jesus' ministry, and then he moves to Galilee, and then so on and so forth. And we're moving section by chronologically, not so much in putting events in order, but putting things thematically, what Jesus was doing at certain parts. This is what we're finding here now, the end of his early ministry before we go on. He's sharing the impact that Jesus' ministry had on the region of Galilee. 
Despite the conflicts with the religious leaders and their desire to destroy him, Jesus' ministry is exploding. It is just growing. Word is spreading. There's no Twitter. There's no Facebook. There's no way of getting around. It's just people who have been healed, people who have been exercised, are just moving throughout the region, telling others mouth to mouth, this is what this man is doing. Come and see. It had grown to the point that Jesus now has to move out of the cities and start to teach along the seashore. Mark has so far only shared only a few individual miracles. And so we may say, why is there such a crowd? Because Mark hasn't given us still many. We've seen the healing of a man with an unclean spirit. We've seen the healing of Simon's mother-in-law, healing of a leopard and the young man who was paralytic. And then as we saw last week, the man with a withered hand. In the first chapter, Mark writes that Jesus' fame had spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. As you can remember, it's mainly that the western, northern shore part of Galilee. And that he healed many who were sick with various diseases. The Apostle John, though, writes in his gospel that he says that there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that have been written. So even though Mark may only record a few of the miracles and the things that Christ did, we can imagine that there was so much more and the fact that it just made ripples throughout the area. Jesus had attracted so much attention through his teachings and his healings and his exorcisms. Theologian R.T. France writes that the impact of Jesus' ministry was shown as an immense popularity. Though despised by the religious and political leaders, the crowds could not get enough of Jesus. They truly were hungry for what Jesus had. The crowd grows as Jesus' reputation grows. In this passage, Mark notes that the crowd included people from the south, Jerusalem and Indimia. It says it included people who were on the east across the Jordan, what we would now think of part of Syria and and Iraq. The northwest, Tyre, and Sidon. He's growing by leaps and bounds. They all came in hopes of being healed with very little interest, it seems, in Jesus other than his gifts as a miracle worker. Now Christ's main desire, as we've already seen here in Mark, is to teach and to call people to the kingdom of God, yet he graciously takes the time and energy to heal them. He did not consider them as interruptions and roadblocks to his ministry of calling people to repentance, but recognized what their needs were. Now, seeking to be alone with disciples, this passage tells us that he's getting ready to withdraw to the banks of the Sea of Galilee. The seashore of Galilee, as I said before, was one of Jesus' favorite places to teach as it provided much room and less restrictions than the synagogues that he would go to. Not that he stopped going to the synagogues, but again, you can imagine going into a place of this kind There was many restrictions as far as people getting in and out. In this place, no one has to take off a roof to see Jesus as there is no roof. And the fact that he didn't have to live with the restrictions of the Pharisees or the the rabbis and others who might prevail over a synagogue. However, there will be no respite or getaway in Jesus' ministry as the people continue to follow him wherever he went. At this point, Jesus' disciples included Peter and James and John, as we saw earlier. It also included Philip and Nathaniel, two people who followed Jesus 
early in his ministry, especially in Judea, and then Matthew, as we saw the call. Though, as we shall see next week, it might have included many, many more who followed Jesus from time to time. To protect himself from the crush of the crowd, he had the disciples to, to have a small boat, probably one of Peter's or James and John, as they were in business together. He probably had a boat and said, have this ready for us as a vehicle to escape from the pressing of the crowd who were interested in his healing ministry. Not only did it provide protection from the crowd, but he also used it as a pulpit of sorts in which he would sit on the boat and then he would teach those who would be gathered among the crowd. Crowds were pressing him, trying to touch him, believing that they could be healed just by touching him, by brushing against his coat or his jacket. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see that the crowd would resort to this tactic to find healing when he would be surrounded by a crowd. Interesting, when he says here that those with great diseases came to him, that English word diseases is actually a translation of a Greek word that means a flogging device. So it would mean like a whip or some type of stick, something that you would hurt and beat someone with or to scourge them. And so then likens their disease as a vehicle or device that was whipping and hurting these people. He uses it to describe the various painful, agonizing, physical ailments and illnesses that they suffered. And you can almost imagine, just as we are given a list of our aches and pains, what these people were feeling. And maybe you too can understand, as you can say, yes, my body has become my enemy. My mind and mental state, my emotions have now become an enemy as a tool used against me. Have you ever felt that way? Then you can imagine their desperation, their desire for help. Though it's not recorded, it's pretty evident from the passage that they found healing and escape from their various pains and disabilities and as we see even exorcisms from those suffering from demon oppression. Jesus had a great impact on these people's lives. As we saw from chapter 1 of Mark, the demons do not go down without a fight though, do they? They go on an exclamation that they knew the identity of Jesus as they cried out, You are the Son of God, with Jesus ordering them to be quiet. What we see in this simple passage is just a summary of what Jesus was doing early in his ministry, to the point that the crowds could no longer be contained. Jesus could not find any respite, any quiet place, always trying to find isolation where there was no people. But even then, they would follow him out. And as we'll find even later, and as we know from our study in Matthew, many times they would follow him foolishly in the fact that they would not bring food or other things to prepare for a long journey. And many times Jesus would have to rescue them from themselves. In just these three chapters, we have seen Jesus has caused different reactions or different responses from people. As I look at summary of Mark 1 through 3, is that many people were amazed and astonished at his teaching and healing. They responded by saying, look at what he's teaching, look at what he's doing, and they seek after him, ready to follow him wherever he goes. The demons, though, responded with fear, mocking him and begging for mercy to Jesus not to judge them or to hold justice or to put them in the waterless places. Even what's more sad to me is that the response of the religious and political leaders is that they despise Jesus and wanted to destroy him. 
And so as I look at that, I find that here in this, you probably responded to Jesus one of those ways in your life. And here today, our testimonies, we're seeking him because we're astonished at his teaching. We're amazed at who he is. We've accepted who his real identity and we're ready to worship him. But I do have some questions that I want to ask of those people. So the first question I'm going to ask is, why did the people come to him? Why were they so hungry? Why were they so desperate to see Jesus? Why did they follow him into the wilderness and to the seashores? The answer is simple. They were desperate for healing. Again, think of the word there, that their diseases were vehicles of scourging and whipping. Their diseases were like torture, in which it called pain and many things. You can almost imagine the spare that the people at that time felt when they were afflicted with diseases and disabilities. There were no hospitals. There were no doctors. There were no medicines that they could turn to. There was no Dr. Oz or Dr. This or Dr. That. They didn't have those types of things. There were no specialists. There was no surgeons to seek out. There was no MD, Web, MD, or any of those types of things. There was not a call a nurse, ask a nurse. There's no medical care other than what you and I would consider as primitive and many times not even effective. Think about how you and I feel today with all of our modern advances. Do we not also despair many times? Willing to try anything, do anything to find healing for our body, do we not? where some will, will go to other countries and, and try drugs that have never been tested. Why? All for the hope of healing. Isn't that what we want? I'm sure within this crowd we took a little small list, but I'm sure there was probably many more of you who were just quiet and silent. That in your heart and in your soul, there is a, a desperation for healing. Maybe the healing isn't necessarily a physical healing. Maybe it's a mental or emotional Maybe the healing is in your marriage or in relationships or even in your own identity as you struggle to think, who am I? And you have the world telling you one thing, but then you understand that that doesn't seem to be right. Maybe it's a spiritual struggle. Maybe it's just the struggle that you have with sin. You say, Lord, just heal me. Take away this battle. Take away this fight. Don't let me think this way. Take away that temptation. And we're desperate for healing. Our hope is to, to then look for anyone. Hence why I think it's very common where it speaks that, that there will be a day when people will have itchy ears. Seeking to salve their wounds with anyone who has something good to say. It's why we medicate with drugs and alcohol and other types of things just to ease our pain. That's us today. Now put yourself in their shoes where they don't have the modern things that we have, the ways in which we can now battle that. These people were desperate. They were willing to put their hope in anything. Imagine suffering from a lifelong disability or disease with no hope for a cure. Maybe even ostracized from your family and community, fearful of catching the disease or the sickness that you have. And one day, in your pain and in your fear and your frustration, you hear about a man who could heal with either a spoken word or a touch from his hand. 
or even a brush from his garment, or maybe even standing in his shadow. To many today who would want to discount the miracles of Jesus, including Thomas Jefferson, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawkins, and many others, they would say, this is why this Bible is nothing. But to someone who has hope, someone who is desperate, these are words of life. You would go to the ends of the earth to find that type of solution. Hope can draw one person to go to extremes. And this is what they did so they can meet this miracle worker. Hope is a very strong emotion and motivator. Christ's main desire is to teach and to call people in the kingdom. However, he knew that those sufferings from physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual diseases and disabilities could not even consider that until they were healed. And healing not only demonstrated his power and authority over the physical, over the supernatural, and over the natural world, but he also gained their attention to share with them the gospel. I would make the personal opinion that I believe comes from biblical principles that we too must take this account in our evangelism. A hungry stomach has a hard time hearing our message over a rumbling of the stomach. A couple suffering in their relationship has a hard time heeding biblical counsel over the pain of broken promises and harsh words. Not that we abandon the gospel, not that we move to a social gospel, just meeting people's felt needs, but that our gospel presentation must be paired with service in love. Too many times we approach people and their problems as interruptions rather than God-ordained opportunities to share Jesus. Let it not be so, people. This church, we've described our strategy of reaching up and reaching in and reaching out. And one of the things that we hold dear as a church is that we're to reach out. The main way we reach out is by sharing the gospel. We believe that's important. That's our ministry. That's what a lifelong seeker of God does. But in the same way, as this one hand, we're desperate to share the gospel. We also want to do ministry, which is meeting needs with love. And so we don't give people one thing with the other hand behind the back, but we give them both. Unfortunately, the mistake is the social gospel in which all they do is give them what they need and never give them their true need. The mistake of the other end is just to preach, repent and believe, repent and believe, and never meet the physical needs that they may have. And so we as a church, as imperfectly we are as human beings, are lifting out both hands, as Jesus did, and say, let me feed you, but let me share with you a food that'll never make you hungry, a water in which you'll never thirst, a spiritual healing that outstrips any physical pain that you may have. And so in the same way, Jesus was exploding with reputation and with the crowds because of his handing out of both hands. He didn't see him as interruptions. He didn't send him away. Even at the pearl of his own physical life, he allowed them to come. The second question I have to ask is why did the demons fall before him and why did he silence them? This always seems to be an interesting question. 
Why did the demons not attack Jesus? Why did not they just try to tear him limb to limb as human bodies and possessed by would have greater strength? Why would they shout out that he's the son of God? That seems to be defeating their purpose. The title son of God was a true designation of who Jesus is. We have already saw that Mark begins his gospel by declaring that Jesus was the son of God. In chapter 1, verse 1, and 9, verse 7, we see that God the Father declares that Jesus is His Son when He is baptized. Jesus makes the declaration in chapter 14 during His trial that He is the Son of God. And speaking of bookends, from the beginning and the end, at the end of Mark, the Roman soldier will declare that Jesus is the Son of God as He sees and expire on the cross. So this Son of God was a true designation, so why would He silence them? Well, I think it's simple. He silenced them because it wasn't time for Jesus to be revealed. First, there were political reasons. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the Anointed One. They were looking for their King. And many times through Jesus' ministry, Jesus left because He knew that the people wanted to take Him by force and make Him their King. That's what they were looking for. They really weren't looking for a healer. They really weren't looking for a Savior. They were just looking for someone who would give them political, national deliverance. And there had been many messiahs, so to speak, throughout the time, even before Christ. And even after Christ, there had been other people who said, this is the Messiah. Jesus knew, the Bible says, what was in people's hearts. And so it wasn't time for him to be revealed, for he knew the people's hearts that the reasons would be politically wrong. Not only did he silence them because the people were not ready to accept who he was, they really weren't able to accept who the Son of God was. To be honest, they did not expect the Messiah to be the Son of God. That was not in their teaching. It was not in their thoughts. They figured he would just be flesh and blood. He was a political leader, a national leader, not someone who was actually divine. This is, this is something that to them was blasphemy, as we'll see throughout Scripture. And also, as he wanted to preempt his death until it was time. As you may remember, the religious political leaders are seeking to destroy him. And just as Satan wants to kill Jesus, knowing what's going to happen here, Jesus is trying to preempt that. If he now declaims that he's the Son of God, that's the very thing that leads to his death. Theologian Walter Wessel writes that the demon's cries of recognition were actually designed to control Jesus and to strip him of his power basing that on the Old Testament, that if you name something, you control it. In this, he means that the demons were seeking to circumvent God's plan in revealing Jesus' identity and His timing. Satan, though he is a defeated foe, always seeks to destroy God's plans and God's purposes. However, as the psalmist says of the plans of nations of man, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them all in derision. The third question we have to ask is why do the religious and political leaders want to destroy Him? And that comes to us as we begin this section right at the end. In verse 6 of last week, after Jesus healed on the Sabbath, we see that the Pharisees went out and immediately 
held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Some responded with great hope in seeking for healing. The demons responded by shouting out who he was in mocking identification and also begging for mercy at the same way, whereas others responded to the impact of Jesus' ministry, seeking to silence him and destroy him. Like the demons, they seek to destroy Jesus. We may try and make allowances for the Pharisees by objecting that they did not know exactly who Jesus was. However, I would argue that the Pharisees and the political leaders had enough information to make a pretty good educated guess. Jesus left no doubt that he was the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that they had been looking for. God's testimony that he was God's son had been spread throughout after John the Baptist's ministry. He had demonstrated through his power and through his healing and his authority and his teaching that he was no ordinary prophet or ordinary man. Yet they rejected any and all witness to Jesus' real identity. And like the demons, they just wanted to thwart his ministry, silence him at all cost. And so Jesus silenced them. He thwarted them. He moved about, not declaring who he was, until it was time. You see, this was all of God's plan. It's all of God's plan. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. And we'll see a famous message from Peter. Remember, many of the words and the events that we're finding here in Mark are most likely the words of Peter as he went around in his preaching ministry. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 26, we see one of his first messages in which Peter is preaching that the kings of the earth has set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and as against His anointed. In other words, the chessboard has been set. They have all been arrayed against Jesus. For he goes on to say, For truly in this city, speaking of Jerusalem, there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus, even in this early ministry, knew where he would wind up. He knew the cross was before him, and so he silenced the demons. He moved around from the religious leaders in order to wait and bide his time when God would do what his plan was. John Piper writes a little booklet. I encourage you to look on it online. I think you can get it for free called History's Most Spectacular Sin. When we killed Jesus, all a part of God's plan. And the impact of Jesus' ministry was part of God's plan. And people responded differently to Jesus. Even in this summary, these people were seeking after Jesus, but they were not seeking after a Savior. They were seeking after someone who would just heal them. Their hope was not yet found in the man. They were found in what the man could do for them. And so I want to encourage you today, that's many times how Jesus or the gospel is presented. We've shared this before. Is many times people are presenting Jesus as just another solution to your problem. You got problems at work, you got problems in your marriage, you're not feeling well, then just get a little bit of Jesus, add him into it, and stir. That's why you have many churches who are growing, yes, but growing in the wrong reason and for the wrong purpose. 
Because many times when we get people and we meet their felt needs without giving them the gospel, we're not really giving them anything. It's like giving them Kool-Aid with not enough sugar. Anybody ever had that? I can't do it. I grew up drinking Kool-Aid, and I tell you what, you've got to have a pound of sugar with every packet. I mean, that's just the way life is. And that's just what people keep giving me is watered-down Kool-Aid. No, I want all of it. I want the thing that tastes well. But Really, people, that's all they really want. They just want enough of Jesus to make their life comfortable. Don't give me too much Jesus that I got to do something uncomfortable, that I got to make a stand, that I've got to vote a certain way, or it means that I got to go to an extra meeting. I don't want that Jesus. Let me tell you, these people are going to find that Jesus' impact in this ministry was wide and very deep when it came to healing. But Jesus, as we were talking earlier in John chapter 6 in Sunday school, that Jesus would thin out those who were truly following him. You know, that's what church is here, to be honest with you. You can tell churches many times if they're giving the gospel or not, but how many they're winnowing out. Because everybody wants a little bit of Jesus. They really don't want to follow him. When Jesus said, count the cost, Pick up your cross and follow me. I don't want that Jesus. I want the Jesus that says, judge not, lest you be judged. I want the Jesus that says, he loves the whole world. I want the Jesus that says, you know, you can have life more abundant. I don't want the Jesus that says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. I don't want that Jesus. And Jesus says, pick up the cross. He's a little bit too motivated. I think there's something wrong with him. But let me tell you, that's the Jesus that we have. As Mark gives us a summary, we're about to go into the next few weeks where the crowd starts to thin out. And Jesus starts to pick those who are truly follow him. So in this crowd of people today, I want to encourage you, follow him. Hope is a great motivator, but do not look for Jesus just as a healer. We need to see him as the Savior. We need to see him as the Son of God. So let me put this into words that you can take home. Because that's what we're all looking for. Because first I want to give you a warning. Do not be like this crowd who desires the gifts more than the giver. Do not be like this crowd in which you desire the gifts more than the giver. And we find this in a lot of ways in which really what we want from Jesus and what we want from God is all the blessings. We don't want any of the bad stuff that comes with it, right? As soon as life gets tough, what do we do? We separate. We see this in relationships all the time. A couple will come to me and say, well, you know what? I'm just tired of living with my spouse. I think God wants me to divorce. And what happens is, is they never really loved the person. They just loved what the person did for them. I fell out of love with them. We all love our spouses. But let me ask you, do you love your spouse or do you love what they do for you? What if all of a sudden, men, your wife had a debilitating disease or accident in which she no longer could clean for you, cook for you, wash your clothes, or even have intimacy with you? Would you still love your spouse? See, that's the truth. And see, that's the problem is many of us are praying for healing. And there's sometimes where Jesus doesn't heal. He says the healing will come later. Do you still desire God. 
Dustin, the Captivator, doing a great series called When I Don't Desire God. I encourage you. That's another free book. All the John Piper stuff, you go to desiringgod.org. You can get all of his books for free, PDF. You can read them on screen or print them out. When I Don't Desire God. So here's a warning. Don't just love what God gives you. Love God. The crowd just loved what he did. They weren't yet seeking him. Let me give you a challenge. See Jesus for who he truly is. Be like the demons in the fact that they fall down and they worship the Son of God. They proclaimed him. James 2.19 says the demons believe and they shudder. We believe and then we go on and live our lives if Jesus, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit doesn't even exist. I encourage you to truly believe who Jesus truly is. Then third, I'd like to give you an encouragement. This full and final healing is coming. If your marriage is in need of healing, if your body is in need of healing, if your mental state, your emotional state is in need of healing, it may not come on this side of heaven, but it is coming. You see, this passage gives us a glimpse of the future when we will all be healed and the demons judged and bound. And every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The impact of Jesus' ministry is that everyone, Richard Dawkins, Thomas Jefferson, Stephen Hawking, you and I will one day bow our knee and confess that He is Lord. In Isaiah 61, we read of God's promise of the kingdom that Jesus came and instituted. For he said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, speaking of Jesus. He said, this is it, this is me, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. One day you and I will be delivered from this body of flesh, from this corruption, from this mortal body, from the presence of sin. Amen? Amen. And until that day, our hope is to seek Him wherever He may be. The impact of Jesus' ministry has echoed throughout the annals and the halls of history and reaches us today. And we will see it forever in eternity. Would you respond to His calling? and to his ministry. There we head bowed and every eye closed. I'd like for you to take a moment to just pause, to pray, to consider, and to respond. In what way have you been responding or reacting to Jesus in the wrong way? Have you been looking for him just for a solution? Have you stopped praying for healing? Have you stopped praying and looking for Jesus as that hope? If so, would you commit this morning to do so? Maybe you're here and you do not know Jesus as Savior. You're still trying to live your life by trying to earn your good works. The Bible says to repent, to recognize that dead works could ever make you right with God. All the good works that we do, our church attendance, our sacraments, our giving to the church, our good works, none of that will ever make us right before God. But Jesus has accomplished what is needing. And trust in that. Know that the gospel is there for those who do not know Christ as Savior. Would you accept Him today?
turn and follow him. Make that decision. Father, we come before you and there's many times that we've given up hope of any physical or mental, emotional, and even spiritual healing. And Father, we've been, many have been fighting these things for years, for decades. Father, we recognize that our hope is not found here on earth. It's not found in modern medicine, but it's found in our relationship with you. So give us the strength. We pray for physical healing. We pray for emotional healing, for relationship healing. We know that you can do that in the now. Father, we also know that many times our life is a battle until that day that we're present with you. Let us hold on to that hope. Let us hold on to when all of creation is renewed. May we be able to seek that wholeheartedly. We pray in your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.